to pray to him together. And thank you. Uh, and to also hear from his word. Uh, it's great to do that. Now you would see that right next to me is a whiteboard. Uh, now usually people said, if Martin had an, a whiteboard when he was preaching, you knew that the sermon was going to be fire. Because he always sniffed on the markers. Just a joke, just a joke. Um, today we are in uh, Amos, um, and a little bit later we will open the book uh, together. But before that, just a quick introduction. My name is Reggie. I am on staff here. If it's your very first time, a warm welcome to you. We are glad that you've decided to join us. Uh, as a church, you heard a little bit earlier, we, our identity is that we are a redeemed family of servants on mission. Uh, just, that just means that God has saved us. He has brought us into his family, and he calls us as people who are part of his family, brothers and sisters, to love one another and to serve each other, but to also love and serve the world so as to extend his family, to extend his kingdom. And this is our mission as a church. And one of the things we also believe as a church is that uh, the Bible actually teaches us about this identity that you and I have. It reminds us of this identity, and it corrects us. When we are going wayward from this identity we have been given, and the Bible also equips us to be able to live as missionary servants uh, for God in our world. And so as a church, we prioritize teaching the Bible. So if you come here at any time, you'll find that we will teach the Bible. We'll look at books of the Bible, and if we do a topical sermon, we will always look at a book of the Bible. And tonight, we are in the book of Amos. Now, the title of this series is Beautiful Ashes. Now, I know some of you, as you were talking, you were probably wondering, why the title? Why Beautiful Ashes? Well, let me just uh, tell you why. As you read through Amos, and you read through the books of the prophets, you realize that the big theme is the death of Israel and the resurrection of Israel. So them being led into exile in one sense, and God resurrecting them to new life, bringing out a new people from then. The, the words that Amos uses are from bitterness to sweetness. That's what he says in chapter 8 and chapter 9. He talks about a move from bitterness to sweetness. He actually says sweet wine, rosé. Just kidding. But it says sweet wine. Now, we could have called the series From Bitterness to Sweetness, or Bittersweet. But it doesn't have much of a ring as Beautiful Ashes. Or we could have called it Graves to Gardens, which carries a very similar theme that you find. See, we'll see in this book how the people of God will move from ashes. God will take them through a process where they will be ashes. But from that, he will pull out beauty. And I'm sure that you and I would agree that there are many times that God has actually done that in our very own lives. So as we go through this book, it will be a challenging book. It will be a book that will correct you and I, but it will be a book as well that will encourage us to continue to live for God. We will see a God who keeps his promises. And our very first sermon is, as you see on the notes, the unrelenting God. Now, and I must say before I start preaching that David actually does a brilliant job in putting these uh, together for us. So please make use of them as uh, we go through uh, the sermon. But let me read the passage for us, then I'll pray for us. Hopefully Amos chapter 1 and 2 will be right behind me. Listen to the words 
from God's word. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherd, shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning, let me go back, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joresh, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and pastures of shepherds moan, and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and four, I will not revoke my punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with the threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazel, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gates of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. Now that says the Lord, verse 6, for three transgressions of, Ge- of Gezer, and for four, I will, not rev- I will not revoke my punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gezer, and, I will, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants of Ashdod, and him who holds the, 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 the scepter from Ashkelon, I will turn my head against Akron, and the remnant of Philistine will perish. Verse 9, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, I will not revoke my punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, verse 11, for three, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not revoke my punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword, and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send fire upon Termin, and he shall devour the strongholds of Bozrah. Thus says the Lord, verse 13, for three transgressions of the Enemites, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they've ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Reba, and it shall devour her strongholds, with shouting on the day of battle, with the tempest in the day of whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, and he and his princes together. Thus says the Lord, chapter 2, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because he burnt, he burnt to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and he shall devour the strongholds of Kiriath. And Moab shall die amid uproar and shouting and sound of the trumpet. And amidst shouting and the sound of the trumpet, I will cut off the ruler from its midst and, and kill all its princes with, with him. Thus says the Lord, verse 4, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not revoke my punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. 
but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Now the last one, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample on the head of the poor, those who trample the head of the poor into dust and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been found. Yet it is I who destroyed Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his root beneath. Also, it was I who brought you out of Egypt, the land of Egypt, and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up, and I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place, as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his strength. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee naked in the day, declares the Lord. Let us pray together. Our Father, we do pray that that this evening as we come to your word, we would see so clearly your holiness And see, Lord, how you respond to mankind when we act in ways that are inhumane. Lord, would you show us your justice? Would you show us that at the heart of it, your justice comes from your love and care for your creation? And this we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dance passage. In his novel called Lord of the Flies, I'm sure you've heard of the book. Uh, some of you would have read it in, in school or at some time in your life. William Golding in this book paints so spectacularly and powerfully the cruelty of humanity. See, he tells the story of these boys who, are, who find themselves stranded in a deserted island when their plane crashes and they are the only survivors. The adults have all died. And these kids without adult supervision decide that they will come up with some rules so that they can live in harmony and find a way to get out of the desert, or this deserted island, rather. But it doesn't take too long for the kids to become cruel and brutal and violent towards one another without the civilizing impulse or leadership of an adult. Spoiler alert. 
Now you've got to say that when people have not read a book or a movie, watched a movie. Spoiler alert, the cruelty of the movie reaches its climax when two of the boys are killed. Now this novel shows so beautifully or powerfully how inhumane humanity can be without order. See, one of the comments that has been made about the plot of this movie is this. Listen to this very quote. Mankind is the cruelest of all beasts because when we hurt people, we realize that they are being hurt. When cats play and eat mice, the cat has no idea that the mouse is in pain. This makes people, who Genesis 1 and 2 tells us is the pinnacle of God's creation, the least respectable of all creatures. Now that is a damning report of humanity. It is damning. And actually this very comment is taken from a book that is called The Damned Human Race by Mark Twain. Listen to what Mark Twain says. Of all the animals, man is the only one who is cruel. He's the only one that inflicts pain for the pleasure of doing it. He inflicts pain for the pleasure of doing it. Now, I don't think you and I need any convincing of this. Because if you were to pick up any history book of the world, you would see that. You would see how humanity has been cruel towards one another. You turn on the news, you take your cell phone and read the news, you would see that. You would see what has happened recently in the Middle East with two nations. You can see how humanity is cruel towards one another. You see this in conversations between you and your colleagues. You, you hear how humanity is brutal towards one another. See, I'm convinced that as we look at the world, we will not, it does not take any convincing for us to see that humanity can be capable of the most inhumane acts. And actually, a few years ago, there was a video, a South African video, that went viral internationally. Now, the video was, now the video contains a lot of content that is inhumane. But it actually went viral. It became viral because people found it funny. Now I think people found what was said in the video funny because of disbelief of what the person said. Now I'm sure you've seen this video. It's a video of a British journalist who interviews two men, and one of whom is my 11. Have you guys seen that story? Sounds like a number of people have seen the story. So this British journalist interviews these two South African men who are criminals and is asking them about their criminal activities and he's asking them, what did you do just recently? And this is what my 11 says. Now, I'll try not to impersonate him so that you and I do not, are not tempted to laugh, but, but because as well, there are men who have experienced uh, uh, what he says here and it would be a little bit unkind to, 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 to make this a little bit funny. But, but he says so clearly... Yesterday, we took four cars in, Bono, in Binoni. And then this man asked him how. He says, using a gun. And then the journalist then turns back to him, Louis. He says, uh, so, so you would hurt someone to get what you want? And listen to what Imari Levin says. He says, in his most famous line, if you do not want to give me the money, I will show you with your last bond. I'll take your last bond and put him in the shower, the hot shower. Then you will see that I want the money. Are you not going to give me the money? You're going to give me. Or for example, I take your, your child and I put him in the oven, the hot oven, I turn the oven on, and I put him in the oven. 
Will you not give me the money? You will give me the money. And lastly, he says, oh, I take your wife and put the knife here. And I say, for example, and blood comes out. Are you not going to give me the money? You will give me the money. You will have no other way. And so in a conversation then that Louis has with um, a taxi driver, he turns to this taxi driver and says, hey man, I could not figure out whether these guys were joking. Were they joking or were they telling the truth? And the taxi driver says, they were telling the truth. And the taxi driver actually says a statement that should send shivers down our spines. This is what he says. See, even if they killed someone, they would feel fuck on. Now, for those who are not South African natives, I, I, I did not just swear. That that's just a word that means they would feel nothing, even if they killed someone. Humanity is capable of the most inhumane acts. Now, before you and I attempted to think that the problem is out there, let's be clear that this is an indictment on all of humanity. This is an indictment on you and me as well. So you and I as individuals, you and I have the tendency to believe that the problems in the world are out there and not in here. And so very often when you sit in services in the church, you will hear people clapping when someone, when the church talks about the sins of people out in the world and then it gets quiet. When the pastor starts speaking about your sin, you, you pick that up very clearly. And very often I think what happens with all of us is that we think to ourselves, surely you can't be comparing me to my 11. I'm not like him. Surely you can't be comparing me to him. But you see, it is astounding to see that at the, at the most times, when you and I hear statements like this, that humanity is capable of the most inhumane acts, you and I immediately activate our inner Harvey Specter and figure out ways which we can justify the wrongdoings or the, or the terrible ways in which we have treated others. The thoughts, the words we have said, and the things that we have done. See, so although we are not like my 11, you and I have actually done, we have thought about, and we have said things that dehumanize others. Things that show that we don't necessarily believe, or we willfully forget that the person in front of us has been made in the image of God. Things that show that we don't think the person in front of us deserves to be treated with dignity, with honor, with fairness, and decency. See, more often than not, even the so-called best of us here in the room would not step into, would step into rather the toes of other people, would step into the necks of other people in order to get what we want. If you don't believe this, look at corporate Look at the corporate life. This is what people do. They would step onto the necks of others in order to get what they want. And you see, this is what Simon, uh, one of the boys in this book, a prophet-like boy, this is what he realizes in this story. See, in this whole story, the boys think that there's a beast that is out there, a beast that they ought to be scared of. But Simon at the end realizes that the beast is not actually some physical entity that is out there, but the beast is in all of us. The beast is internal. All of us have the propensity to act in ways that are inhumane. And you see Amos in chapter 1 and 2 here will show us how not only the nations, but the people of God as well, have acted in ways 
that are inhumane. He will show us how humanity, without the guiding hand of God, without the providence of God, without God giving them order, how humanity can be a scavenger, like a a hyena who would eat their own kind. I don't know if you've seen that with hyenas, who will eat the remains of their own kind. Humanity, not so different. We would do despicable things to get ahead of others. See, humanity can often be capable of the most inhumane acts. And you see, as we come to this book, one of the questions we've got to ask is this. How does God deal with his good creation gone bad? How does he deal with humanity that lives in this way? Because God made humanity good or made humanity to live within his order. But if you remember in the series in Genesis 1 and 2, we decided to do things in our own way. How does God respond when mankind lives in this way? Well, you will see as we go through this book that God actually puts mankind in the dock. That the prophets, the prophets, one of the things that they do in their writing and in their speeches, what they do is to give us a courtroom scene where we see God is the judge. And God is also the party, the innocent party that has been offended. And the, prose- the prosecutors in this case are the prophets who are coming to remind us of how we have broken our vows to God of how we have broken our morality. And humanity are the people that are accused. And so as we go through this passage, three things that we will see. And all of these will use legal kind of language. And these are the three things we will see as in the paper in front of you. One, the charge. The charge that God brings against humanity. And then two, the conviction. And then three, the call. So let's go to our very first point, the charge. Now, the way in which Amos will show us the charge that God brings against humanity, the charge that he brings against the nations, but much more importantly, Judah and Israel, especially Israel, is in a way that is brilliant. The way he does it is artistic and skillful. It feels as though you're watching a Spielberg, uh, a Steven Spielberg movie, where you've got a tension that is building up. He's building up the tension slowly, so as to give you the central part at the end. And the way that he he actually does it, you will see it tonight, is that he first talks about the nations that are surrounding Israel, but at the end then talks about Israel. And this is how he does it. I want you to see this. I'll point out a few things about the nations that are mentioned in this passage. So if I was to draw for you the the map of the uh, ancient Near East, as this area was often called, this would be Israel, right? I hope you can see my handwriting. Not the best drawer, but I hope you can see that. Then this would be Judah. Now, I'll explain why Israel and Judah are separate a little bit later. And here you would have an area that was called Philistine. This is where Gaza, or whatever your uh, pronunciation is, uh, of it is. This is where Gaza is. This is where you find one of the nations. This nation is called Edom. And right here is another nation. And this nation is called Moab. And right here you would find another nation called Ammon. Now I'll point these nations out to you in the verses. 
And here, you would find a nation that is called Syria. And right at the top, you would find a nation that's called Tyre. Now, as you look through the verse, you'll notice that the first kind of people that he addresses is Syria. The capital of Syria is Damascus. That's verse 3. I hope you can see that. He first speaks about Syria. That's the first nation that he speaks about. Then straight after that, he speaks about the Philistines. And thereafter, he speaks about Ty. And then thereafter, you will see he speaks about Edom, which is here. And then he speaks about Edom, and then you've got the Ammonites. And then he speaks about Moab, and you'll see that he ends with Judah. Interestingly, what, what, what Amos does for us here is to speak in cycles of seven. And the very last thing that he will talk about, the eighth one, is his target. See, all of these nations had a conflict with Judah, with Israel and Judah in all of their history. But at this moment, we're focusing on Israel. All of these nations had a conflict with them. And as he talks about all these nations and all their sins, all the crimes that they have done, and God's punishment that will come to them, what he is doing at the very end is leaving the nation of Israel at the center of his message. See, at the very end, he wants you to see that Israel is the target of God's message. Israel is at the crosshair if you've gone to a shooting range of God's message. If you read through this whole prophecy, you will realize, or this whole message, you will realize that he spends the most of the time talking about Israel. That's what he does. Now let me just put this back up here. Now he builds the tension. And this is how he builds the tension. As he speaks about Syria, you can imagine the Israelites have had conflict with, with Syria. That has that been a, a long, 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 a long conflict. So as they would have heard the news about Syria, you can imagine that there was cheering. That this guy has come to tell us that Syria will get judged. As he tells them about the crimes of Syria, there would have been celebration. And as he continued to talk about the different nations, there would have been a lot of celebration. But ultimately, when he got to Judah, they would have not just been celebrating. They would have been popping bottles. And this is why. Israel and Judah have also had a, had a conflict, which came about when God divided, divided the nation of Israel into two. See, at one point, the nation of Israel, Judah and Israel, were one country. But because of David's sin and Solomon's sin, and in one sense, Rehoboam's foolishness by raising the text of the people, God raises up another man called Jeroboam I, whom he uses to take ten tribes to form a new nation, which is called Israel. And in the, in the south, you are left with two tribes that are called Judah. Now, these two nations had conflict for a whole lot of reasons, one of which was worship. See, Jeroboam did not allow the people to go all the way down to worship because he knew they might decide not to come back. And so he built a number of worship centers here so that the people would not go to the south. But here's the thing. These guys, as brothers, whenever each of them was experiencing war, one of the others would gloat. They would laugh at the experience of the other. And some commentators actually say they would join in. And so you can, you can imagine the conflict between these two nations. And now this guy, Amos, who actually comes from the south, Tekoa is from the south, comes in to speak to Israel and mention to them that God will judge Judah. You can imagine that there would have been popping of bodies. There would have been celebration. What, 
God is going to judge Judah, they would have been celebrating that. But at the very end, he points the finger at them. He shows that God, God's biggest message is actually against them. For the rest of the book, he actually talks about Israel's sin. That's what we see here. And so this tension that I mentioned earlier that built up with celebration and popping of bottles, it, it would have immediately turned into deathly silence. So silent or so quiet that you could hear a pin drop like at Old Trafford. No, 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 no. And, and what happens here is like the moment when a preacher is preaching and you're sitting there and the preacher is talking about particular things and you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, oh, I wish so-and-so was here. I wish so-and-so was here to say this. And you're saying, yes, preach, preacher. Go deeper, Papa, go deeper. Tell them, tell them. And then the preacher in a Paul Washer kind of voice says, why are you clapping? I'm talking about you. This is what he does. I'm talking about you. God has come to bring his charge, his charge against you. The accused number one in Amos' speeches is Israel, the people of God. Now, what is the charge against the nations, Judah and Israel? What is God charging them for? Well, I want you to see what each verse begins by saying. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions, and notice that thereafter it says four. If you've read Proverbs, you would notice that Proverbs uses something that is very similar to this. Are they three and four or six and seven? And then thereafter lists, it will say six things and then seven afterwards. And then list six, seven things thereafter. That's not really what happens here. So what Amos wants you to do is to put three in together to say, this is the complete list. This is what God, this is the charge that God is bringing against these people. So he will mention either one or two or three things. But notice what God is bringing against his people, or the nations and his people, they have transgressed against him. Now, what is that? Now, that simply means they have rebelled against him. See, the nations have rebelled against God as their creator. God has made them, and because God has made them, he decides how they should live. God can decide what the nations do. And so God here points out that he's bringing a charge against them because they've rebelled against him as their creator. Whereas Israel and Judah, he's bringing a charge against them because they've not lived with him as their creator and savior. But I want you to notice the details because the details are gory as you read through this passage. Notice, I'll just point them out uh, as we go through the passage. Look at Syria and how what Syria has done is described, how they've rebelled. Look at verse 3. Syria, Damascus, this is their transgression. Verse 3, because they've threshed, or they've threshed rather, Gilead with the threshing sledges of iron. Now let me explain what that is. Threshing sledges of iron were used after you had taken grain and then you would harvest it. What you would do to the grain, a grain has a, a stalk and then at the very top it has, it has the thing that has the grain at the top. And so as you use the, the, the threshing iron sledge, what you would do is you would separate these two and pull away the stock. What you, the picture that you're meant to get here is that what, what Syria has done is torture people. Whether it's torture people using this very equipment or by dismembering people. You're meant to get that kind of picture in this poetic language, that this is what they've done. Now, if that's not inhumane, I don't know what is. Look at what Philistine has done. 
See, what they have done is they have traded people as slaves. Verse 6. Because they have carried into exile a whole people and delivered them up to Edom. God makes it clear that he's bringing a charge against them because they've taken a whole people and sold them as slaves. Now, it does not just say there that it's Israel and Judah that they've taken as slaves, but it could have been people from other nations. And that bothers God. See, very often when we read the Old Testament, we think that the only people God is concerned about is Israel and Judah, but that's not true. God cares about all of his creation, and so he will hold all of these nations to account because of how they treat the other nations. So they've sold or trafficked people into slavery. Notice what happens with Tyre, which was a commercial city in Phoenicia. They've also broken their, 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 their promise that is, that is part of a treaty, which was a contract between two nations. And notice what they've done. They've also sold people into slavery. Edom, the brother of Israel, Edom, the brother of Israel, because Edom actually comes from Esau. If you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, notice what we are told about Esau there, about brother Edom. Because Edom has pursued his brother with the sword and cast off, and cast off all, of his, all of his pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. It actually sounds like the story of Jacob and Esau as you read it. And you see the conflict between these two continued all throughout history. And you're meant to get a picture of war there as you read through that. And then you notice what the Ammonites, what is said about the Ammonites. The Ammonites have killed unborn babies. That kind of language that you see there, they've ripped open pregnant women. Now that's poetic, but it could also be literal, that this is what they've done. If it's poetic, then it's talking about how they've treated others in war. They've treated others harshly whenever they've gone into war. Notice what is said about Moab in chapter 2. Moab Moab has burnt to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Now, Edom is not one one of the people of God, but God is concerned about how Edom is treated as well. So in one sense, if you lived, if you've seen stories of apartheid South Africa, you would have seen how people are necklaced and touched alive. And this is what happens here. This person is burnt to lime. And God has an issue with that, this inhumane treatment of people. And with his people, Judah, he says, their transgression is that they've turned away from his law. They've turned away from the way that God has called them to live. So the way that Israel was meant to live is by loving God and loving neighbor. They were meant especially to love the poor among them. And you see it very clearly when we get to chapter chapter 2 from verse 6 onwards, that Israel actually ignored and mistreated the poor. They sold them into debt slavery, and they denied them legal representation as well. Listen to what is said in one of the passages in chapter chapter 2, verse 6. They sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Whether that's poetic or not, that is scary. But, but notice what is said afterwards. A man and his father go into the same girl. Now, this girl could have been a slave girl. She could have been working for them. And because she's working for them, they would have seen her as their property. She's poor. She can't look after their, herself. And so they mistreat the poor. This is what the nation of Israel 
has come to be. You see, as you read through these crimes, the crimes of Israel, you can't help but see that they have no love for God. They can't claim to have a love for God if they treat their neighbor in this way. They can't claim to have a love for God if they treat their neighbor this way. But as you read through the crimes as well, you might be immediately tempted to think, wait, hold up, Reggie. With the first five nations, you were talking about people being killed and people being sold into slavery. These guys have simply not looked after the poor. They've mistreated the poor. Surely those two things cannot be compared? Well, actually, in God's economy, the defaming of one who has been made in his image is equal. It is equal. The defaming of those who have been made in his image is equal. So essentially, all of these, at the heart of it, are inhumane acts against those who have been made in the image of God. See, the way that we treat those who bear the image of God often says a lot about what we think of the one who has given them that very image. It says a lot about what we think about God. See, Israel's lack of love for neighbor is a reflection of their love for God, or I should say, the lack of it. See, the absence of true worship in Israel is clearly seen in their lack of justice. One of the best quotes I read as I was preparing for this is this. It is a closeness, it is a sign of closeness with Yahweh, with God, that one is concerned about Israel's poor and needy. The way that we treat the poor, even today, is a clear reflection of what we think of God, who has made them in his image. Now, a little bit later in chapter 3 and 4 onwards, we'll talk a lot about the poor. Because this book actually talks a lot about justice to the poor. So we'll talk about that. We won't spend a lot of time in it today. But what is shocking as we look at this should be this. That the people who were formerly oppressed, that God rescued, have now turned to be oppressors. This is not Marxist language. This is, this is not political language. But as you read through the passage, you see it so clearly. Those who were formerly oppressed have become oppressors now. See, as you read through this, you wonder to yourself, is this the very same family that was denied justice, who were enslaved in Egypt? A family whom God rescued from slavery and oppression. A family that God made a covenant with and then called them a kingdom of priests. He called them royal priesthood. People who were meant to take the life of his kingdom into the rest of the nations. How is it that these very same people are now mistreating others. Do they have spiritual amnesia? Have they forgotten how God has been merciful towards them? How he has rescued them in their neediness, their helplessness, and slavery? We've got to ask ourselves that. But that same question is one that is turned to you and me. Do we sometimes have spiritual, slave, spiritual amnesia? So whenever we treat others badly, it is because we have, we have forgotten how God has been kind to us. And we have forgotten these people who have been made in the very image of God. And you see, the evidence that God will bring, will bring up against us at the very end is evidence that is beyond reasonable doubt. No one on that very day when God stands before them and says, this is the evidence that has been brought before you. No one will say a statement that we've heard in many of the famous trials, if it does not fit 
you must not, you must acquit. No one will say that because it will fit with all of us. And no, none of us will claim ignorance to say, I did not know what I was doing. I, I, I thought it was an intruder. None of us will claim that. None of us will claim ignorance when God brings up the charge against all of us. So God will put all of humanity. He will call all humanity into account for all the inhumane acts that they have done. Now, our second and third point are shorter than the first. The second point is conviction. So God has brought a charge against his people. Now, what is the conviction? Notice with me as you read that the passage here tells us so clearly that God is unrelenting. And where do you see that? Look at verse 3. For three transgressions and for four. I will not revoke. So I will not relent my punishment. And it goes over and again. That same statement is repeated. I will not relent. This unrelenting God says, I will keep my promise that those who mistreat those I have made in my image will be punished. And you see, Israel and Judah will not get a pass on this. They will not get a get-out-of-jail-free card. They won't. Judgment is coming to them. The lion has roared against them. He will not pull back. Now, if you've seen lions chasing prey in the wilderness, whether you've seen it on National Geographic, you'd have seen how a lion is relentless, how a lion is unrelenting, and God is unrelenting against those who treat his people in inhumane ways. Now, notice the kind of pictures that Amos uses to describe God's judgment, to describe this conviction for us. He uses three pictures, fire, exile, and death. Now let me point them out to you from the verses we have just read. Look at verse 4. I will send fire upon Hazel. Verse 7. I will send fire upon. Verse 10. I will send fire upon. Verse 12. Same thing. Fire kindled. Verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 5, same thing. Exile, chapter 1, verse 5, look at that. I will, I will break the gate, bar of Damascus, and cut off the inhabitants from, from the valley of, ha- of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go to exile to Ker. And verse 15 says the very same thing. Chap- chapter 1, verse 8 then speaks about death. Notice that, I'll cut off the inhabitants of Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon, I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of Philistine shall perish. Perish there is death. Chapter 2, verse 3, same thing. Three images, fire, exile, and death. Now as you read that, you might think fire is talking about hell, but in the Old Testament, you do not necessarily get that picture Yet. See, what you are meant to see as you read through these poems or these words from Amos, you are meant to see that he puts together as a parallel fire and exile. And so, what he wants you to see is, is that with these three pictures, he's actually painting one picture. He's painting a picture of the end or the death of the nations, including Israel and Judah. See, he's painting their death. He's painting how God will turn them to ashes. 
That's the picture that he's painting here. And you see God's conviction rate is 100%. God's conviction rate is 100%. And God will hold all of these nations and will judge them. He'll hold them to account and he will judge them. Now you may ask, why does he do that? Well, Psalm 19 tells us that God holds the nations and all people into account because he has revealed himself through creation. If you would start this week, you would have heard that. But for the, Israelites and Israel, for the Israelites in Judah, they would know that God has revealed himself in his word. And so God's, God's punishment for them will even be heavier because of that. You notice that God spends a lot more time with them. There's a quote that I love from David Wilkerson. Listen to what he says. Judgment is God's rowing against wickedness. And God sends watchmen with warning to avert judgments, not just to announce them, God always hopes that his warnings would be heeded and judgments avoided. So as God says his prophet Amos, he hopes that the people would hear this message. And in chapter 5, you get a picture of that, that God calls them to seek him. You get a picture where God is asking them to come back, but they don't. And so what the prophets write to us, they show us that the Israelites did not actually listen, which is why they show us that the death of Israel and the death of Judah was inevitable. It was inevitable. If you notice in verse 2, we are told that there was an earthquake. And a lot of commentators say, actually, this earthquake was sent as a warning. So that they would realize that God is calling them to come back to him. See, God sends warnings. And he sends warnings here through Amos to warn the people of death that is impending. If they do not turn back to him. But you see, even today... A lot of people, like the Israelites who did not listen here, a lot of people do not take the judgment of God seriously. They don't. Very few people, even in the church, take the judgment of God seriously. For most of the time, actually what happens is, it is not God that is sitting on the dock. It is not God that is being the, it is not us that is being the accused, rather. Rather, for most of the time, most of the people will have God as being the one who sits on the dock. They will look at God and accuse him and ask him, why haven't you done anything about this evil in the world? They'll, 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 they'll put God on the dock. As C.S. Lewis says this, he says the ancient men approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person who approaches a judge. But for the modern men, the roles are reversed. He is the judge, and God is on the dock. He is the kindly, he is the kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense, for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, then he is ready to listen. The trial may even end with God's acquittal. But the most important, important thing is that man is on the bench and God is on the dock. Man is the judge and decides how God should run the world. But we see here that God is the one who is the judge. And he brings all men to, he brings all men to account. And you see, we see so clearly here that God will not be mocked. He will keep his promise to punish those who have rebelled against him. In Genesis 9, in the Noah Covenant, we are told this applies to all humanity, that if anyone mistreats anyone, if anyone kills someone, then the judgment that comes to them is death. Similar to what you see here. And in Deuteronomy 28, in the Mosaic Covenant, we see there that God says to his people, if they do not live in the way that he calls them to, then he will send curses upon them. He will bring death upon them. 
So God is the judge who will judge the nations and his people. But we should see this, that God judges because he loves. I don't think we actually often think of that. God judges because he loves. It is because God loves all these nations that are here that is concerned about how they treat each other. God judges because he loves. See, if you and I are honest to each other, with each other, I don't think we would want a God who does not judge. All of, us, all of us talk about a God who's loving. We want a God who's loving. But have you realized the most, that most of the time you've done this at a playground as a kid or perhaps in your office? In you, there's this inkling of justice. You have said these very words. That is not fair. That's not the way it should be done. That is against the rules. No, no, you cheated. It should have not been done that way. All of us have this inkling of justice and want a God who will judge. And actually, God judges because he loves. He loves his creation and does not want his creation to spiral into utter chaos. It is because God loves that he judges. But I know now you are probably waiting for that moment. Reggie, are you going to bring up Jesus? I mean, we always wait for that, don't we? Whenever we hear something about judgment, we're waiting for that. We're waiting to hear Jesus so that whatever has been saved, we can quickly brush aside. Hey, no, Jesus has taken that, so I'm good. That's what we often do. I mean, it is true, as you read through the message of the Bible, that Jesus is the one that takes the fires of God's judgment on our behalf. It's true. It's true that that's what Jesus does for us. But if that's all we take away from this reading, then we would not realize that this very same Bible that we read tells us that God actually disciplines those whom he loves, those whom he calls, whom he has redeemed and made his own. Hebrews Hebrews 12 tells us of that. God disciplines his people when they have not lived in the way that he calls them to. So how are his people meant to live? Third point which is the shortest of them all, the call. How are his people meant to live? I think you and I would agree that the people of God are meant to live in the opposite way of what we see in this passage. That's what the people of God are meant to do. The people of God are meant to realize the brokenness in the world, the cruelty in the world, the beast in the world is not out there, but it's in us, even as Christians. See, God saves us and redeems us, but in Romans 7, Paul tells us, that you and I still have this tussle within us between the pulling of the spirit and that of the sinful nature. And it's clear in Romans 8, as you will hear when David comes, that we are not obliged to follow the flesh. We are obligated to follow the spirit that God has given us to empower us. But a a lot of the time, you and I find ourselves doing what we did not want to do, what we did not want to do. We find ourselves doing very terrible things. And so the first thing we've got to realize is that the brokenness is not out there but in, in us. And two, we must realize that everyone is made in the image of God. And so doing anything that dehumanizes them is rebellion against God. And three, we've got to realize that you can't claim to love God if you do not love your neighbor, especially the needy amongst us. Let me give us a few examples just to wrap off our time together. A few examples. I'm going to tease this off because actually chapter 5 talks about what the call for Christians should be. 
So we'll spend a lot of time talking about this in chapter 5. But here's some of the things we ought to be thinking about in the coming week. I think as Christians, very often, we will be fine talking about corruption that is out there. Corruption in the world, corruption in government. Yeah, we'll be fine talking about corruption in the government. Look at how they're looting resources that should be used to care for the poor. And then we hire a helper that we do not even pay minimum wage. Isn't that dehumanizing someone? Isn't that denying someone the dignity that they deserve as someone who's made in the image of God? Or maybe what we will do. Now, I'm teasing this out because in the next few weeks, we'll look about it. We'll go online and protest against human trafficking. Oh, yeah, we'll protest about all of these things. And not too long afterwards, we'll go to a site, an adult site, and watch all sorts of things. Now, in a book called Captured by a Better Vision, Tim Chester actually puts these two things together. He shows that actually most of the women that are used in these videos are in one sense slaves. They're, they're, they're needy because they're, they're mistreated there. The other have drugs that these guys are offering them and misusing them. So you may go online and you talk about human trafficking and you post all of these things and then you do that. Or three, we may even talk about the rights of the unborn. Yes, let's fight for the rights of the... And all of these things are good things. Don't hear me not say that. All of these are good things. We'll talk about the rights of the unborn and yet not care about people who are neighbor, or we see someone who's walking on the road who's struggling. We talk about being pro-life, but there's someone who is needy, who does not necessarily have the life, and we do not find ways to show them love. Now, I could go on further to talk about how you and I use words to slander people. I could go on and talk about a whole host of things, but we'll talk about it in the next few weeks to see what it looks like to seek justice to seek the Lord, and to live for him. Now I'll close off with these words. You and I need to realize that we need to come to God. Yes, God has rescued us, but we need to come to God. We need to come to his word so that we can continue to tame this beast that is within us. Because you and I can act, can think about and do things that are beastly that are inhumane. 